to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Today we talk to Rick Dadia and Irene Espiritu about the release of their new album, The Ten Ton Feather. We get to check out lots of samples, talk to them about how they join forces musically. Good times and good stories. So sit back and enjoy the episode, The Ten Ton Feather. Thank you. Welcome, Rick and Irene. So the first thing that I like to ask everybody is, what does music mean to you? It means feeling what you're singing and meaning it, not just having a good voice. It's about what is the, what do the words say and what, it, what kind of picture do you have in your head when you, when you sing the songs. It's, a, it's about the meaning of it. I grew up with music, mainly singing. My, my whole family loves to sing. It's kind of like breathing to them, you know? They like to hum a lot, and everything is about singing. I grew up... They sing a lot. They sing a lot. In fact, for Christmas, my mother lives in New York. My mom came to California to spend Christmas with us, and she was so excited. She printed out the lyrics for 12 Days of Christmas. She had a printout for every member of the family, and she wanted to rehearse before the actual gathering. So each family, there was a rehearsal of singing Christmas songs. Oh, wow. Christmas. <laughs> but the thing is, sorry, you know, you got to sing this thing over and over the 12 days or whatever, 12 nights. It's very repetitive, yeah. Well, yeah, and yeah. then after, like, you rehearse it, like, six or seven times, it's like the 184th day of Christmas, you know? It's just like, yeah, <laughs> four calling birds. But for me, I, I think just there's always something that helped me understand my life growing up. Whether I, I'm just not too focused or, or I have too many ideas going on, I could, when I'd hear someone do a song that I really liked, I could just relate to it in ways I couldn't relate to it myself. I couldn't figure out how to relate to it. And the songs put it my life in context, you know? And I was able to use that as like a, a touchstone throughout my life. And over the years, it's just, I went from listening really into the lyrics a lot. So to me, it's still a way to convey like um, um, what's going on inside, you know? And just given that kind of release, you know? Like I know when I when I'm even just re- rehearsing or practicing songs, even trying to flesh a song out, um, and nothing else exists, and it's just um, nothing else exists, and it's uh, totally in, in the present, that kind of thing, and um, it's a real freeing space to be in with the, with the way the world is, and you know, and just the way life is, you know, it's a really great great place to be. So. You talked about family being really important to you, Irene. What kind of background and influences of music did you have when you were growing up? My memories are of my uncles always playing, you know, like Kansas and Sticks. And there were records back then. And so we would pull out the liner notes and we would sing with the lyrics. And so that's how I started really listening to the words. I was born in the Philippines and I moved to the U.S., I started meeting more and more people, you know, blues and jazz. And, and then I joined you know, gospel choir, Glide Church in San Francisco. Oh. And um, and just, I got so obsessed, you know, with just listening to the different kinds of music. But it was the blues um, that really got to me because there was, there was feeling there and there was a reason why the music came out. And so I started digging into the roots of that and uh, it just kind of developed into from blues to jazz and then gospel. 
um, singing at Glide. I had no idea what I was getting myself into, um, but I learned a lot from that. And then the world music, I ended up joining a band, you know, and, and they played, you know, world beats and Latin mm-hmm. rhythms, and it just opened up a whole new world for me. And so, um, so now I just like exploring just, you know, different things. The first concert I went to, we, me and my brothers snuck out with this guy named Joe, and I went to see Joe Pass at the Village Vanguard, and I think we were like 15 or 16. That dude just, like, rocked it, man. I mean, like, whoa. You know, going into the village, into this legendary place, and this little hole, smoky hole, and checking this stuff out. Most everybody at that time, I guess, was kind of listening to, you know, Cindy Lauper or whatever it was during our time, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And we were going to see these crazy bands and jazz to just weird rock stuff, you know, that wasn't on the radio. This was all in New York? In New Jersey. Oh, New Jersey. In Jersey. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we the village, moved. what are you describing as? The village, Vanguard, uh, Greenwich Village. Oh, okay. And, and there's and, these, okay. these jazz clubs down there. Yeah. One one notable one is the Village Vanguard. And Joe Pass is just a great guitar player. Just started opening up a whole different worlds, you know, from there. It's like Jeff Beck and that kind of thing. But also, too, it's like being in New Jersey. I remember moving there and everyone was talking about uh, Bruce Springsteen. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> Bruce who? You know? <laughs> and like... Our parents every weekend would make us go outside and work because they didn't like idle hands or whatever you want to call that thing. So on the weekends, we'd have to go and work. We'd go out on this big hill of ivy that I don't know why, but my mom said you'd have to we- – they'd make up stuff for us to do just to be outside and get stuff done. It was so hot and muggy some days. We used to call it going to the NOM. You know what I'm <laughs> I mean, you're, you're knee deep in ivy and you're weeding it for some reason, but they just want you to work. So – I wanted some reprieve from the nom, so I brought the stereo we were listening to, those little boom boxes, and we used to just go inside the house. I'd say I'd have to go to the bathroom and hang out in an air-conditioned house for a while, you know? And But I remember WPLJ, the guy said, oh, coming up next is Bruce Springsteen. I'm like, oh, so I pushed play and record, and I wanted to hear what this guy was all about. There was a song on there called Sandy that they played, and I was like, whoa, man. Like, it's the first time I really listened to, like, lyrics really got me you know i actually remember sitting in that bathroom and just listening to that you know an air-conditioned place getting out of the nom and putting in the center gonna this guy was gonna come on and i taped it and just we come from california everything on the radio was like the eagles or fleetwood mac or jackson brown it's like that era and you go to this to the east coast and you're hearing like ian hunter the who zeppelin and springsteen and you know ramones all these different types of people you know, obviously the Who, Zeppelin, Ian Hunter, Ramones has this kinetic energy to it. And back then, Springsteen had this kind of more laid back kind of vibe, which was, ah, it just was like, whoa, it just really, really hit me, you know? And I, I just remember that as a turning point in my life. If you listen to that song, Sandy, it's like, uh, he makes you see a whole lot. So poetic, but really street level. It made me see the boardwalk before I even went there. I, I remember just playing that thing over and over and over, trying to figure out what he meant by that. And that was just kind of my love of lyrics. Sandy, the fireworks are hailing over Little Eden tonight. Forcing a light into all those stony faces left stranded on this warm July. Down in the time the circuits for a switch, blade lovers so fast, so shame, so as the wizards play down on pinball way On the boardwalk way past dark 
And the boys from the casino dance with the shirts open like Latin lovers on the shore. Chasing all them silly New York virgins by the score. I remember like one of the best sons I had, uh, Mr. McKenzie, he was an English teacher, and he was one of those teachers who, you know, he told the whole class to bring in your favorite lyrics, and then you go over them in class. So everybody brought in all these different lyrics or their favorite songs, and you'd read, everyone would get a copy, and then you'd have to explain what that song meant to you, and what, it, what you think it means, and then he'd talk to the class about it, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on there. You, you just think it's relatively simple, but there's, everyone has a different interpretation, and it opens up new doors, and it's like made me see again differently. It's, it's a great discussion. I had the same thing eighth grade. I mean, we brought in stuff. This teacher that I had was... A, Mr. McKenzie? It wasn't Mr. <laughs> McKenzie. I don't remember what his name was. He was a big Bruce Springsteen fan. Oh, and wow. he, oh, wow. he kind of kicked it all off by oh. talking about Born to Run and some yeah. other lyrics, some just yeah. classic ones. Kind of turned me on to, well, maybe I should investigate some of this. The Nebraska album oh, is man. just a kick-ass yeah, album. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, one of my favorites yeah. still. And even like like that that song, Sandy, it's like the first couple lines. Um, Sandy, the fireworks are hailing over Little Eden tonight, forcing a light into all these stony faces left stranded on this warm July. Just like things I didn't quite understand, you know? But like, there has to be a reason for it. There has to be a purpose for it. And and the song just goes on into all this. At, my, at that point, it was just ideas to me. Trying to put physical, like a physical feeling or a physical place to all those images he, cr- he created um, just left me wanting more. I was in the basement of my cousin's house. I found this cassette tape. I was probably 11 or something, and it was, you know, Scott Joplin Entertainer. And that was that was the first time I actually played the song over and over, re, you know, rewind, play, rewind, play. And my cousins yeah. would come down, and they're like, what are you listening to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I felt kind of embarrassed about it. But, but you know, on my by myself, I would just, every day I'd come home from school, I'd just... Rewind played in, in just the whole, you know, every single note um, played a part in this song, and it was so beautiful. And years later, in my in my twenties, um, we went to go see John Williams at the Davies Symphony Hall, mm. and he played it on guitar, and I started bawling because yeah. I hadn't heard that song. First of all, I haven't heard that song in a while. I've always known in my head that it was played on a piano. And he played it on guitar, and it was amazing. But I, that was the very first song I remembered that I, I loved so much that I played over and over and over again. And it was kind of like an introduction to, you know, the love of music. Such an odd song in a way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, to know like that's what got you. Can I ask a question? What uh, like when did you know that you could sing? Like when did you realize someone said like, oh, you can really sing good, you know? Like, or did you already, did you always know, or did he? No, I didn't know. I, I um, I know I've always loved to sing, but I never sang in public until after college. I would go to this cafe, Alan Monkey, in the city, and I'd study there, and I'd see you know people doing. One night I came on an open mic night, and I thought, oh, that's that's really cool. And I didn't know how to play guitar very well by back then, so I had a friend play with me. And so secretly, we were kind of trying to get a showcase night, you know. Yeah. So my friend Kathleen, they're like, what? You know, blah. Oh, wow. Um, Because she's never heard me sing before. Wow, really? You know, we really worked hard. We rehearsed, and I was so nervous. Wow. And I don't know why I, I, what compelled me to actually 
play out there, and, and we did, and it was it was a lot of fun. It felt really good. I thought it was like high school or something. You figured out how to sing, but that was like after no. college, right? Yeah, it was after college. Wow, crazy. My papa said, "You're never ever growing old." My papa said, he said, you never, ever growing old. You better find a better body, want to keep up with your soul. One thing I know, you got to keep your head up high. One thing I know. To keep your head up high No matter who, what, when, or what Your might will always get you by Well, if Methuselah lived 969 years If a old man river got through them rivers full of tears Then I could live long and free. But it's like you think like with like a voice or something, it's always with you, you know? Like you always think, oh, like you're walking around and people are like, oh, wow, you have a good voice. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. you would... Like I just thought everybody sang, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody. But you were kind of exposed to singing with your family anyway, so yeah. you were kind of always doing it. Yeah. yeah, I just thought it was just a natural, yeah. you know. Yeah, really. It, it was really natural with them. Huh? Just hanging out at their house and yeah, just do great. it. I think it's just that maybe it's just a stereotype. Filipinos love to sing, you know. It uh, was what makes people, make them feel better. Uh, the part of just a culture of the family atmosphere. Yeah. And that's just an activity that you share. Yeah, I don't think it's just my family. I, I think maybe in general, Filipinos love to sing. I agree. When you're, when you're, kind of living you know, in a third world country and um you know you you don't have much and you just have your family and you just you know you sing to make yourself feel better do you think that maybe in part that you're kind of drawn to uh music of the south or or family i guess i would say family oriented music americana i kind of think of as a bunch of people sitting around a uh, the fire or whatever and, and singing folk songs together and passing on stories from generation to generation. Is that kind of why maybe you are in this kind of genre of music? I think so, yeah. I, I, I'm drawn to more rootsy kind of stuff. I was mainly drawn, I guess, to the blues because you're you're surrounded by hardship and, you know, you're compelled to to have something to hold on to. And I think I, that's something that I related to. And even listening to old recordings, you know, like Alan Lomax and his his dad, just hearing them, it just kind of resonated with me. Wow, these guys are not just singing just for the hell of it, you know, yeah, they're getting something of, out of it. You know what some, I mean? A lot of passion in those recordings. They're not even sung especially well either. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like it's all about the gut reaction to things. But that's um, kind of what got me into punk music a little bit. Was is that? The people had things to say that might not technically know how to how to sing them, but to me, it's about the emotion and the power that you yeah. put behind what you're trying to do. And I, I don't mean the the people that are screaming just you know as loud as they can, but you can tell there's you know, like 
uh, one case would be not necessarily punk, but like Kurt Cobain. Yeah. You yeah. could tell that there was a lot of pain and emotion yeah. behind the, his delivery. And you might not even be able to understand the words, but you could relate somehow. Maybe you could relate or you could at least uh, have some empathy for. Where'd you grow up? In Seattle. Seattle. Yeah. yeah and I, I grew up mo- mostly to, you know, classic rock type stuff i really got into rush early on yes yeah, i was all into that stuff too. yeah mainly because the lyrics the lyrics were just stimulating and it wasn't it was stimulating yeah. there was something going on that you didn't quite for yeah. me i didn't quite get you know like they were talking about stuff i really didn't get and it, mm. it was just little clues that just kept you going forward yeah you know and oh, it's exactly totally not the kind of music i ended up doing but yeah. um but i remember again it was another sneak out night and i i from where i lived in new jersey we hitched i hitched the meadowlands to see Rush, and I got on the on the parkway, stuck out my thumb. First car pulled over was like this Trans Am, you know, classic yeah. Trans Am with a winged <laughs> bird on the front, you know, three long hairs in there. <laughs> and they're like, "Where are you going?" And smoke is just coming out of the car. And it's like, "I'm going with you." You know, <laughs> I already knew where they were going. Yeah, yeah. Got there, and uh, I think I was grounded. And when I, my brother and his friend got to go, and when I got to the show, there was my brother and and Neil. <laughs> yeah. Friedman sitting right there and I'm like hey man I was like it was a good show man I was just in a bookstore and just you know browsing through stuff and then this book fell out and it was called The Land Where the Blues Began and I just started reading about it and um, I was dating someone that, at the time who was also who also played blues but he played more like Stevie Ray Vaughan kind of stuff not the you know this kind of blues so I just started reading the stories and so I ended up buying you know recordings of, of his like everything I could get my hands on and and that I just became obsessed with it, and so I st- anything like you know prisoner blues recordings and even Appala- Appalachian um, recordings. So that's kind of where everything started, going down to the roots. You know, it's kind of going backwards instead of going forwards. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting exploration. Yeah, well, that's everybody goes on their own journey. Yeah, and it's interesting to see how people get there. Or going there. You never really get there. Mm, good call. Good call. Um, so how did the two of you meet? What was the musical chemistry be, you know, between you? Back in the 90s, we used to play our own stuff. You know, We knew each other just playing at the Hotel Utah open mics. So we knew of each other, but we never really hung out. We both stopped playing music for a while. I stopped playing music for 10 years. And then we ran into each other at the freight to go see Kelly Joe Phelps year after went to go see him again ran into him again <laughs> and then a year later i moved to oakland and it turns out he lives right around the corner from me and so we just started hanging out and rick started pulling out the guitar and you know playing i'd given up music too because i had a kind of a bad musical experience and after trying to, to play for so long and i put it down for a while and for a couple of years i didn't play at all i couldn't even pick it up and then there was something in me that little by little I'd pick it up, like maybe five minutes and put it away for a week and then it grew to 10 mm-hmm. minutes and then it was like maybe 10 minutes a day. But I still wanted some kind of relationship with music that wasn't fulfilled yet. I didn't want the same relationship I had with music. I thought my songwriting was going what everyone else was doing. I was too worried about what was popular as opposed to What's what I felt. You? Yeah, And so I didn't want to pick it up and and go right where my hands went to, the same chords, the same things. Um, and that's kind of what led me to playing this kind of lap style thing, is I just twisted the knobs and put it in weird tunings and figured out a way to chord 
and do lead with my fingers, but also palm a slide, and I could bring the slide in whenever I wanted. So I was just kind of working on a different technique. So I, I had to actually listen again. I had to like respond to what my fingers were doing and respond to what the guitar was telling me, as opposed to just going automatically where I went before. And it just really reintroduced how to listen and how to like how to look at the neck differently. It's not just laying on your body differently, but it's like. It's a whole new neck out there, and you're reaching for different things. Kelly Joe Phelps, he does a kind of a slide lap style thing. Mm-hmm. He kind of got gave me the idea of, of doing that kind of technique, but I also didn't want to do what someone else was doing, so I was trying this whole different thing. Mm-hmm. So little by little, I was I was playing on my own, and then when we met Irene, I'd kind of been thinking about playing again. You were kind of encouraging me to to keep going at it because she remembered some of these songs I did back when. And, and you pull out old cassettes of your stuff. Yeah, like, you well, start listening well. on road trips, mm-hmm. listen to old stuff. That was pretty cool. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, maybe I can do this again with a different result. Well, it's pitch black and I sent chills through my bones. And these Mississippi showers made me wish that I were home. I've been driving far too long. Here and I can barely see The lines along the highway And the road, road in front of me I see something in the distance And I'm not sure what it be When I see this ghost approaching And it's calling out to me well, I wondered, was I crazy? Was this some kind of dream? See, this ghost, he was my father Who died, yeah, when I was three Cause music's a really weird thing when you start to play it and write it. Again, you never get there, you're always going, you know? I stopped playing because I just got frustrated. My, you know, I, my family bought me this guitar for Christmas and it was just too big for my fingers and I just got frustrated and um, so I just quit altogether but I always wished you know in the back of my head that I could start playing music again and writing more songs and I just kind of put it in the back burner you know just kind of being lazy about it till I met Rick it kind of inspired me to actually write again but what got you pick your instrument and start writing on that two things <laughs> We were watching The Jerk, and um, <laughs> Steve Martin pulls out the ukulele, and he, you know, saying, you know, you belong to me, tonight you belong to me. I thought, ah, oh, you know, that's a really cool song, and so I bought this little airline u- concert ukulele, and I was so obsessed that I just, you know, I played with it all the time. And it fit her hands. I was so excited about it. Because I got into the ukulele, um, Rick got me tickets to see Bill Tapia at the freight. And then I just realized, wow, there's a whole new world of playing this ukulele. And so it just kind of opened this door of possibilities. A lot of people, they use the uke as just the Hawaiian thing, you know? And we didn't want it to do that. When she was playing it, she'd write this really cool blues thing. And you don't have to be stuck in what's done before you. You know, you have all these blues, these, who's that, Jake Shinobukuro, and all these different people who just totally rock out on the thing. Um, But it really is an eloquent instrument. You know. But I learned also that, like in the 30s, they, you know, the, people were playing ukuleles all the time, doing ragtime and 
Um, but it's more than a shtick, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It, but it's kind of become a shtick again. You know, like a lot of people are playing ukuleles all the But I think that because more and more people are playing it, it's the shtick part of it is kind of becoming less and less. Yeah. And you're not just playing the standard, you're playing a tenor ukulele. Can you describe tenor. what that is exactly? Um, it's so there, it's the third size up from the concert, and so it's kind of I use a, a wound up G on it, so it kind of adds a little bass, um, and so I tune it kind of as you would the baritone, which is the last four strings on the guitar. Okay. And so um, it's easier for us to work on stuff together because I just you know figure out similar fingerings, so it was easier to pick up for me, with as far as fingerings are concerned. So it's got, you know, the little low-end part because of the wound string and the high-end part of a, a ukulele. What made you decide to move from the concert ukulele that you started with uh, to, to the tenor? Well, the high notes of the concert, I think, is beautiful, but I just I was needing something with more bass to it because my voice is, I'm, a, I'm an alto, mm-hmm. so I needed something that was a little deeper, and so I kind of explored between... Something between soprano and and baritone, and the concert was still a little on the high end, but the tenor was just perfect. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, how did you guys start playing together? We started going to open mics, and he started booking gigs. One night we had two gigs. We were playing locally. We were playing at Nomad Cafe, and then like three blocks down is the Starry Plow, which is more of a rock club. You didn't play at the Nomad with me, but when we went to the Starry Plow, if I remember right, you played with me on that one. But what made me remember what was we had something going on is like while I was playing, <laughs> it was like everyone's chattering, blah, 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 and I'm just sitting up there singing. And then when Irene came up, for some reason, everyone started to look at us. <laughs> like, everyone started to listen when Irene came up. And I'm like, hmm. Yeah, you're like, hmm. <laughs> what can I do? How do I keep this going? And uh, so we just wrote more songs together. You know, I just kind of thought, well, that that really it really worked. And I noticed, like, I mean, I'm goofing on it a little bit, but it's like I noticed there was a a different kind of attention brought on, you know, than when she came up because she's surprising. She's small, but her voice is really big, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and she's Filipina, so that's also kind of you don't see that too often with the music we do, like Americana. There's really I don't really know of any. He was able to get a gig at CBGB's and the Bitter End, some songwriter showcase thing in the East, in New York. And he said, I'm going to New York. I got this thing. And so I started bawling. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, I want to go to New York <laughs> and play too. And so... And tried it there. And we didn't really know what we were doing. We just kind of went up there and flailed around. But it's like, oh, wow, we played at those two cool places. How do we keep this thing going? Yeah, that's... A- yeah, it just cool. got, and it was just totally by. It's unexpected. Everything was unexpected. Totally by luck, but you know, it's primarily just putting yourself out there, just sending it out there, and and gives someone the chance to accept it or decline it, and they, you know, they accepted it, and so we went out there, and we're like, wow, it's cool, man. So we just kind of we just went from there and kept building off of that. Yeah. 
right, so uh, any thoughts on Ten Ton Feather, your first joint release? It comes from a line in the song, Love is a Ten Ton Feather. It also comes from how we view ourselves, because we normally perform as a duo. We put a lot of work into our songs, and she plays ukulele, and I play guitar. A lot of our songs are pretty, I don't know, we try to dress them up, but they're pretty intense. But we're this soft, little, demure, little group duo. We like to think that it hits you like it. Like if our music was a ton of bricks, but it's really not because we're not a band. We're just this little duo. We hit you like a 10-ton feather, you know, soft but hard, you know? Yeah. And hopefully it seeps its way in. There's a lot of stuff going on in the music. We got a lot of yeah sliding and scratching and stomping. And yeah, and the themes are pretty, you know, tend to be pretty pretty heavy. And I also think, you know, we're sending 10 tons of metal in the forms of... Uh, of arms to other countries blowing them up you know love is a feather a 10 ton feather you know it's like right now we don't need um more more energy going to that we need we need what a, what a feather is it's light it's bendable you know it takes flight it's strong it's sturdy it's forgiving there's a lot of good things that we could learn from that uh, that we're not really sticking to right now and so when i say love is a 10 ton feather it's all those things you know that if we could just put that out there to to who we deal with on a day-to-day basis or our countries deal with that's kind of the what it means to me on some inner level it's that's kind of what it means to me as your first joint release talk about the recording process were there happy moments sad times frustrations angst or was it a joyful experience the whole way through how did you assemble the songs and who are the other musicians that you played with uh, on this recording it was all of the above, all of those emotions and then some, because it's very personal, you know, and you put your creative all in it. There were a lot of areas where we didn't agree, and um, we had to decide. Come back and live with one another afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, and, we, and you know, it's, it was really hard. It was really, really tough. You know, you believe in what your creative mind says, what you hear, you, be, you believe in it, and you want it to be that, but then the other person also has an input. And they also have hear it a certain way, and they also it also sounds good. So, how, two people, how do you decide? And you know, you just have to learn how to let the other person have it, and and let things go because you know you can't have it all. Um, you have to be giving in some ways. Love is a feather, a ten ton feather. <laughs> but yeah, we we you know we we fought a lot, and um, but we also learned a lot. And in the end, you know, we, we we came out with something that we're really happy, really proud of. Sounds like my marriage. <laughs> I mean, it is. Go. It's a relationship, no, it's right? A yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's a, a building and learning and growing process. That's. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't mean it as a joke, even though yeah. it might sound funny. But and yeah, breaking sure. apart too. It's yeah. falling apart too. Uh-huh. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Sure, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's hard because, you know, we also live together, so there really isn't a break about it. You're mm-hmm. constantly thinking about it, and you want to talk about it. And Rick's very good at draw the line and relax about it, which I think is good because you really have to take a break. You can't keep at it, you know? Well, yeah, you're in a relationship to begin with, and then you're working, really, full-time together. And, yeah, yeah. and in a creative process where I know my wife and I are both stubborn, we basically have to learn to give, and yeah, that's, uh, and that's a good thing. It's a good to learn how to do that. Sure. And uh, and to realize that oh, you know, I'm being a butthead here. I need to just back down and 
and we'll work this out and it'll be good. I've always uh, enjoyed collaboration anyway and you know in the bands I've been in that's been very important to me and when one person starts to try to take control or something I tend to try to put back put things back into a more collaborative effort where we're yeah. all working together you know rather than than one person being a dictator or whatnot. Yeah, yeah. John Evans worked with us on this and he was kind of like a how would you describe it? He was like uh, he's like a therapist bar- yeah. slash bartender. Yeah, you like- don't need therapy, man. Go record a CD. <laughs> everything comes out. The insecurities, everything. And, John and was ju- great. John's just a really even kill guy. And he's been through it. He's, he's seasoned enough musician where he's, he's seen it all. He's been through it all. He knows what you're going through. So he knows there's, there's no flaw involved. It's just the whole pro- It's just the process. That's what it takes, you know. And John yeah. uh, Evans is bass player, <laughs> lap steel guitar. What what did he do on your album? He played. He did a whole bunch a actually. Yeah. Did some piano. Did some organ. Some percussion. Yeah, he's he's a piano. he's primarily a jazz bassist who's played with a bunch of people and worked with a bunch of people. His primary gig now, he's been the bass player for Tori Amos for the last I don't know how many years now. Her music is really diverse and with her he he just doesn't do bass either he plays all these different types of instruments to give kind of the create the scene or the ambiance flush out the sound yeah Yeah, flush out the sound a little bit when we did this you know we we play live as a duo and we try to create this raw kind of thing just between two people and we've tried to recreate a live thing in studio before but it's never quite come off like a, a studio environment is different than a live environment and we always try to play live in the studio and it you hear it back, it just doesn't sound right. John, with the jazz background, thought we, he could just bring in these different elements to where the song still kind of ruled, but you still had um, the less is more approach. And there's more more finesse in there as opposed to trying to drown out the song with other instruments, you know, more complimentary stuff. Are you taking a much more structured approach in the recording process? Like, are you using click tracks? Or are you still a little bit loose with the live feel in a studio format? Me or it was both, actually. Yeah, we're both. Certain Whatever song. the song calls for, maybe. Huh? Yeah, well, I think we. I don't think we used click tracks too much. I think maybe like a couple of songs. Yeah, just when a we couple. had Scott play the drums. We played with Scott Amendola. Anyone out there listening needs a drummer. Scott is just a great guy, a great drummer, king of tone. He's always searching. If you see him play, he's always searching the kit for another place he could hit to get the right tone. Great creative ideas with the ability just to hone in and, and follow through on them, you know? But, like, on some of these songs, the intent was to go play them, get Scott playing them, play with Scott, and then Scott is almost like a human metronome, you know? But come back and have me re-record with the metronome over it. Mm-hmm. But the feel between Scott and what we were doing on a good bit of these songs, we we decided just to leave it as is. Others, though, we did click track. Primarily, it was like... Uh, Mississippi yeah. instrumental kind of tunes. Mm-hmm. Um, Not a lot. I think it was mostly no click tracks. Yeah, I learned a lot about timing, and I realized how much how bad my timing was <laughs> until I got there. <laughs> I was like, "Wow, you know," and how important timing is. A lot of times, I would when we didn't, you don't have a band to play with, just me and Irene. If you want to put a little extra tension or. or get a little bit more ramped up you just seem to play it faster and you get a little louder and you think it's doing something when we did that in the studio it just sounded rushed and all crammed together it didn't sound good but if you stuck to the time tempo 
Yeah, you can change the feel just can, based on how you feel. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. it, it, the whole time-space continuum just opened up for me. And I'm like, oh, wow, there's a lot I haven't even thought about in regards to music. You know, I mean, it's it's limitless, man. Mm-hmm. It really is limitless. It showed me how little I, I, I really know and how much there is to explore in it, you know, if you want to take it that way. Sonically, all these things we learn. Incredible, man. And I'm still trying to figure them out. Black man like a house to move Red eyes wet and swollen shut Try to push those things far down Down to where those things get put now Oh, big river, he cried We have a wide variety of kind of songs, like just kind of folk, there's, there's bluegrass, there's blues, just kind of a folk rock kind of thing going on. There's some odd, little odd things. It's enabled us to kind of put all these on, on one CD, you know. We play as a duo most of the time. We wanted to bring people into it to color in what we do, because some mm-hmm. people don't really quite understand. When they hear guitar ukulele, they're just kind of like predisposed to going, hmm. And we wanted to color in some of the lines for people to see what... what that skeleton would sound like if you flushed it out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. We also thought it was would ex- I I thought it would also be good to exp- it would help expose us to different people who wouldn't necessarily hear come to hear just a guitar and ukulele. But when they hear this, they can hear how accessible those instruments are as a songwriting foundation, right. and um, and how cool it you know when you when you put these different instruments to it. It's like wow, I think that's that's a guitar and ukulele driving that, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's another reason why I think why we put all these different types of music on there, so we could kind of show what can be done with it, you know. Like oh wow, that's a guitar and ukulele. I think the idea behind this too is just that a lot of times you go see a band live, and they play exactly what's on their CD, and it's you could have just stayed home and listened to the CD <laughs> exactly. or something, you know. Yeah. It sounds just like them on the CD, just playing their CD. We kind of well, on a creative front. We've never recorded with a band before, so we kind of wanted to see what we would do with that. That's one reason why we included these people. The other thing is, too, for the people who follow us and come to our shows, it gives them another way to relate to us that they can't hear normally. So it gives them another another view at the same out of the same window, in a way. Yeah, so it doesn't get cool. boring, you know? And if they get tired of the CD, they can go, oh, this is the, you know, that's so much, there's so much better live, check them out live. But there are other folks that just, they think this, the the 
the extra musician just adds something that we don't do live and best of both worlds in a way. You uh, recently played with the Bramlin' Jack Elliott at the Freight and Salvage on their reopening. How was that show? Any good stories to tell from that? <laughs> it's a brand new place, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, they normally, it used to be 250C. It went up to like twice that and with standing room even more. It's kind of this arena thing. It was part of the grand opening week. The staff was just even getting used to the place. So we're bringing in all our instruments, coming through the side door, and we're supposed to be taken back to this back to the backstage area. Now the freight only had one backstage before, and it was just little dingy room, and everyone just went back there. Now they have like it's like a cave, you know? It's <laughs> and a like maze. it's a cave and a maze. So the staff didn't really know the place yet. So you know, we had our Spinal Tap moment, man. <laughs> so we go in one door. The guy's leading us around. We go past, we meet Jack or Ramblin' Jack one time, and we go past him to our place, and he's still, the guy who's showing us around where to put our stuff still doesn't know, and we end up going out a a side door. It's kind of like a horseshoe. So you come out the other side with all our crap that we're we're holding, and we're we're kind of shimming along, and we're going past the people that are standing in line for tickets. (laughs) And (laughs) there's a fire door. And it's a fire door. door, So you can't go around. So you can't go back in. So you Uh, go back around once. We'd make one lap. And the guys, the guys leading us going, isn't this fun? Isn't this funny? And I'm like, I'm about, you know, I'm a curmudgeon, man. You know, I'm getting a little angry at this point. Yeah. And you go past, we, we, go, we go by Ramblin' Jack again. Hey, man, how's it going? <laughs> sail through his little corner of the world. We go through ours. We can't get back to ours because that door locks behind us. We had to go, since that door locks behind us, we had to go out the front again, past the people waiting in line for tickets with our instruments again, right? So we're, on, like, lap, what are these guys we're on lap two. And they're like, what the hell's going on? We go through lap two. Ugh. We go through three of these, man. And I'm, I'm kind of pissed, man. I just want to sit down. I'm nervous. I just want to re- relax. Yeah. There was a spinal tap moment where it's like, oh my God, where do we go? You know? <laughs> they need some signage. They need some signage, <laughs> man. But, you know, they, they just opened this new place yeah, and they were trying new. to get it all together and they did a great job. I mean, it's really a great place to play. And, um, I mean, their, their backstage is bigger than our apartment, man. We were going to squat there <laughs> and just have them like, they have a TV where you can see the audience. Yeah. You know? Like people coming in and sitting down. And yeah. So we know who, who was coming to see us and where they were sitting before That's they awesome, even man. knew it. You know? It's like, it gives you a lot of confidence, man, if you can just find where you're supposed to go. <laughs> yeah, you said that uh, you could hear the music from anywhere on stage. I think right? they must have monitors on the side of the stage, because wherever you walked, you could hear yourself. And so there's no dead spot on stage. And so you just you just relax. There's no sweat in that, you know. It's all happening down at Everybody 
you've picked up quite a list of musical greats that you've opened up for. Willie Nelson, Ricky Lee Jones, Odetta. Have you learned anything? Any great experiences or stories from any of those shows? I don't know. I kind of like the fact that our little roster are the aging, old, older kind of people who have kind of like, um, like Odetta, she led movements. Well, I was going to say that would must have been kind of interesting. You know, yeah, that was that was really a really eye opener one. It made us realize like, wow, we're just ridiculous. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, she's in a wheelchair up there, yeah. but her voice, man, was as strong as it could ever be. Uh, we, you know, we get stressed out about in between song banter or like what to say or even how to do it. Man, this woman, she gets wheeled up there <laughs> and she talks slow and deliberate. Everybody listens, and when she sings a song, I swear to God, something resonates through you. Something in her voice does something, mm. and it just makes you go, "Damn, we're a million miles away from that." Yeah. You know, um, you don't think of it as a performance anymore. You don't you think, just think of it. You just you just can't help but think of history. You're part of the experience, you know, yeah. And life yeah. stories and um, experience. It's no longer about singing, really. Looking back on this musical thing and to say that was our string of people that we were associated with, with our time with it, it's good company. Uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about is that you mentioned that you've been working on this boat, Plastiki. Uh, can you talk about that project and, and yeah. what's going to happen with it next and your role in it? It's a boat. It's a 70-foot catamaran made out of recycled plastic, engineered plastic, and 12,000 two-liter Coke bottles are going to be the what gives it buoyancy. Now, what is the cabin that made out of the part that you worked on? There's a Danish company who makes this material out of recycled plastic. You know, like um, fleeces is a po- or a polyester is made from a, kind of a plastic kind of material. They can mm-hmm. melt this down or do something with it, and it, it, all, it just feels like fabric. And what they did was they, they took the fabric, mm-hmm. and they, they run the fabric through a snowboard press, but they used to laminate snowboards for a certain amount of time and as they press that down and the heat gets into the fabric it melts it into a solid and that's what we make that's what we made a lot of the boat out of the way you attach it is by heat you're kind of like melting one piece to another mm-hmm. you know kind of a welding type thing even like the I-beams in between the catamarans and between the two hulls made these I-beams out of uh, the same material in a mold you know 20 feet long foot high I-beams, I think that it's like 50,000 pounds per square inch of force it can take. Wow. And you think about, (laughs) yeah, and you think about the, what that could do as far as uh, infrastructure and rebuilding bridges and and that kind of thing, all out of recycled material and not using steel. There's a lot of um, uses for this kind of material that they haven't even thought of yet. Part of the boat is being held together by like a, a soy nut kind of glue. Like a soy husk kind of glue. Wow. Yeah. I don't know if I want to be in the Pacific with soy husk glue holding my <laughs> boat together. But, uh, well, it must be tested. And they're taking it on a test run anyway, right? Yeah. They're, they're doing in November. They're going to be crossing to Oakland. But they say the hardest part is going to be one of the hardest parts is getting out of the bay just with all the currents and that mm, kind of thing. Yeah. Once they get out to open water, they feel a lot better. It's just fighting it, the currents. Is it just sail power or is there uh, engines on board too? They're going to have a backup engine just in case. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have solar panels to run all the GPS navigation kind of stuff. It's part of a National Geographic expedition that's sailing from San Francisco to Sydney. It's about a 2,600 mile. You know, so the, the impetus is taken from the Contiki 
in a more of a futuristic present day kind of thing using um, engineered recycled plastic. It's, it's a statement of what you can do with plastic and obviously using recycled plastics in new ways. Part of the thing is they're sailing to that island that's about the size of Texas. That's all made garbage. up of yeah, this garbage island, this sea waves, the vortex of the of the ocean currents oh, yeah, manifest yeah. this big island of trash and they're gonna they're gonna sail there. And National Geographic's going along, BBC's going along and they're picking up Thor Heyerdahl's granddaughter is going to be on part of the journey. Mm. And it's just to create awareness about the ocean, about plastic, uh, how much we throw away without even thinking, and um, what we can do with it if you do recycle it. When the journey's done, I think they're going to recycle the boat just as a show of... Oh, wow, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, pretty crazy. They can just recycle this whole thing. Well, good. Thanks for coming by, Rick and Irene. Pleasure thanks, to have man. you on the show. Oh, thanks, man. Appreciate uh, it. You can find more information about Rick Dadia and Irene Espiritu at their website, 10tonfeather.com. They've got links back to their MySpace page, links to their solo albums, and 10 Ton Feather, of course, available for purchase on their website. We're going to go ahead and leave you with another track from the 10 Ton Feather. This one entitled, Flying.
You've been listening to Music Life Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter. Thanks for checking us out.